This section will uh, focus upon the issue of contemporary martyrdom operations or suicide attacks. Suicide attacks are a phenomenon that has characterized a contemporary radical Islam for approximately the past 20 years. And they're a very interesting development. Um, as uh, stated in the previous section, the uh, phenomenon of suicidal attacks had been known for some time among Shiites. Shiites had used the tactic of mass wave attacks or even occasionally suicidal attacks against Israel and South Lebanon and in other different localities. However, the phenomenon of attachment of suicide attacks to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Sunni radical groups is a comparatively modern phenomenon and requires a good deal of explanation. The issues are not minor. The fact is, is that traditionally suicide was uh, regarded as being one of the worst crimes possible for a Muslim to commit. The process of jihad, however, was considered to be among the most noble that one could possibly participate in. Connecting a suicidal attack to jihad is not that difficult. Uh, in the first section of this talk, we discuss the issue of the single fighter charging a large group, which was the primary legal definition that was used by classical uh, Islamic legal scholars discussing the issue of how on earth could it be justified that one would demonstrate suicidal bravery inside the battlefield. And the fact is, is that for classical Muslims, the operating issues were, first of all, the intentionality of the fighter. If the person intended to, uh, to fight as a jihad warrior, then his, uh, then his intention was accepted as such. And second of all, that he wasn't actually physically drawing the sword or the knife or whatever to kill himself. And so for practical purposes, from a classical point of view, the uh, jihad warrior was exempt from any accusations that he or she uh, might actually be committing suicide. However, contemporary suicide attacks uh, employ a slightly different methodology to them. In general, they're associated with, uh, with conveyance of large quantities of explosives during the course of which a suicidal attacker will push a button that will detonate that particular bomb usually in the midst of a target uh, audience. Now, these type of attacks have the ability to communicate fear and horror in a way that conventional attacks do not. The fact is, is that they are able to maximize casualties in a greater manner because they're able to oftentimes correct last-minute changes that could conceivably foil conventional bomb that would be unable to know whether uh, its target had moved away or was slightly obscured and so forth. In essence, suicide attackers are oftentimes called the smart bombs of a, a poor man's warfare. And as such, they have an attractant value to, uh, to radical Muslims. They have further attractant value as well. The fact is, is that they highlight the self-sacrificial nature of radical Islam in a way that puts it in, a, in the most favorable light. 
basically radical Muslims see themselves as in a, as an immortal struggle with the elites of the Muslim world. Those elites they perceive as being sold out uh, under the pay of Western powers, uh, decadent, luxurious, drunk with oil wealth, and oftentimes actually even non- or anti-Muslim. Carrying out martyrdom operations highlights the difference between radical movements and their opponents and places the others in a most unfavorable light by demonstrating the willingness to actually die for the sake of their cause, they can highlight that self-sacrificial, the willingness to turn one's back on the world, and also the fact that they are willing to give up everything solely for the sake of Islam. So for those reasons, uh, radical groups have embraced, to some extent, uh, suicide attacks uh, during the recent past. One of the sources of these suicide attacks goes back to uh, the Quran in Quran 2, 207, where it says, and some people sell themselves for the sake of Allah's favor. Allah is kind to his servants. This is a verse that is usually uh, cited uh, in support of suicide attacks in contemporary fatwa literature. However, uh, it's important to realize that that classically that this was not known as such that this particular verse has only been cited in that regard in the recent past. The only other time that it's known to have been cited by anybody uh, in a public situation, ironically, was by Ibn Muljam, the assassin of Ali, who is said to have recited this verse as he stabbed uh, the fourth caliph. Suicide attacks were unknown uh, in, uh, in radical Islamic fighting, up until the early 1990s. And this in itself is quite an interesting phenomenon. Uh, we find already that, uh, that, uh, that starting with the Afghan war against the Soviet Union in the 1980s, that there's a fixation upon martyrdom and martyrology that is led most strongly by the figure of Abdullah Azam, who later on would come to be the founder of Al-Qaeda. He wrote... The life of the Muslim ummah, or community, is solely dependent upon the ink of its scholars and the blood of its martyrs. What is more beautiful than the writing of the ummah's history with both the ink of a scholar and his blood, such that the map of, his, of Islamic history becomes colored with two lines, one of them black and the other one red? History does not write its lines except with blood. Glory does not build its lofty edifices except with skulls. Honor and respect cannot be established except on a foundation of cripples and corpses. Emperor, empires, distinguished peoples, states, and societies cannot be established except with examples. Indeed, those who think that they can change reality or change societies without blood sacrifices and invalids, without pure innocent souls, they do not understand the essence of this religion, and they do not know the method of the best of messengers." This is a very stark and strong statement from Azam, who uh, one might remember held to, uh, to a salvational interpretation of, of jihad 
that was much stronger than anything that one finds in Islamic history going all the way back into the times of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak and the first Islamic conquests. But his worship of martyrs did not actually allow for necessarily suicide attacks. It's interesting that uh, that Azam does mention suicide attacks briefly in one of his uh, in one of his compilations, and he calls them suicide attacks, amaliyat intikharia, uh, which is not the term that would be later embraced by by uh, Sunni radicals who are his ideological descendants. They would prefer the prettified term of amaliyat al-istishadiya, martyrdom operations. But he uh, talks about them in a favorable light, but comes to the conclusion that is very common from classical times that they simply are not efficacious. This is the discussion that you find most commonly in uh, in pre-modern times, is that uh, jihad writers would examine the issue of suicidal attacks, but come to the conclusion that there's no particular gain that can be made from them that could not be made from ordinary fighting under any circumstances. And it is difficult indeed to visualize in a pre-modern society what a person intent upon suicide could actually accomplish with a sword and spear or bow and arrow that could not be accomplished uh, were he not to be suicidal. But with the appearance of explosives, that particular equation does change. A person who straps on explosives and uh, conveys them into the heart of an unsuspecting enemy or a person uh, who is able to penetrate into uh, the sanctities of his enemy's uh, headquarters, for example, can perhaps uh, wreak a, a huge amount of damage upon that enemy. But usually, usually, that will only happen actually once. Now, there has been problems. There have been problems with uh, the acceptance of uh, martyrdom operations among Sunnis. And it's not difficult to see the reasons why. First of all, uh, there are questions about uh, the nature of tactics that uh, allow for such suicide. Quite a number of of Muslim ulama have never been convinced by the idea that there is no element of suicide inside a suicide attack. And indeed, uh, it's not easy to understand those people who who claim that there is not, since by its very nature, one who pushes the button or who detonates a bomb is uh, starting out a, a train of action that will inevitably lead to the perpetrator's death. Suicide attackers simply do not survive their attack. They are usually the first to die. And this is what uh, differentiates suicide attacks from suicidal attacks. Because there are a range of attacks that can be called suicidal in nature. Uh, Probably the best example is the Mumbai attacks of November of 2008 during the course of which 10 uh, Pakistanis attacked the city of Mumbai and managed to kill about 180 people. The goal of the team was actually to kill as many people as they could and then uh, to die. But the fact was is that actually one of them survived. 
uh, Mohammed Kassab survived and has been lately giving his dramatic testimony in an Indian courtroom. So this sort of attack demonstrates that even though it was suicidal in nature, it did not inevitably lead to the death of every single one of the perpetrators. Suicide <coughs> attacks, uh, in contradistinction, do lead inexorably to that particular uh, sequence. And so, one of the one of the the opponents of uh, of suicide attacks arguments is the fact that it is simply suicide. The second group of attacks examines the uh, the targets. The fact is, is that suicide attacks violate quite a wide range of, of laws against uh, uh, killing civilians inside jihad. And this has to be answered, and usually is, by radical Muslims, uh, by using what's known as the Manganel argument. Uh, a Manganel is a catapult that uh, catapults a large payload of rock, or sometimes in later uh, medieval periods, uh, in explosives, into a given area where it can kill fairly indiscriminately. And the key word right there is indiscriminate. The fact that the payload uh, does not choose to follow uh, armed men throughout a given city or location, uh, it kills whoever it kills. It destroys whoever it destroys, whether they're civilians or whether they're armed, uh, whether they're... uh, helping out in the defense of a given area or not, whether they're Muslim or not, uh, it makes no discrimination. And so because the Prophet Muhammad is known to have used mangonels uh, during the latter part of his ministry against the, uh, the fortified city of Taif, this has enabled a wide range of uh, communities, uh, of, uh, of, of scholars, to, uh, to use this as a precedent that indiscriminate killing on behalf of Islam is, uh, is permissible. And therefore, things like suicide attacks, the use of weapons of mass destruction and so forth are actually uh, legitimate. Now, this is a, a rather weak argument, um, but it's never been exposed to the sort of attacks that it should have been. Um, it remains to be seen whether uh, qualified scholars would be willing to take it apart uh, and in my, it, give it the treatment uh, which, in my judgment, it deserves. Uh, a third group of oppositions uh, has tended to focus upon the sort of questions of what exactly do suicide attacks accomplish. Uh, whether they are actually jihad or not is not so much important for these uh, for these people as to answer the question about from practical purposes what actually do they accomplish for the uh, the people that are carrying them out and this is also not something that's very easily answered um, after in, in the wake of September 11th 2001 when uh, Al Qaeda had managed to uh, to carry out some uh, some of the most spectacular suicide attacks ever uh, marshaled against any uh, target, uh, they were asked, uh, "What exactly was the purpose of these attacks?" Uh, and the answer really was nothing. There was some element of revenge, 
Uh, some speaking about uh, about various different wrongs that have been carried out against the Muslims, but there was no sense that the uh, that, that the actual target would be defeated by the uh, by the given action. Again, a problem inside suicide attacks since they're usually leveled against civilians, and there would be no sense that any particular conflict would be brought to a close by the certain attacks or that the attacked party would have any cognizance of the reasons or significance of the given attacks and perhaps even accept that there was some sort of historical justice involved. As a matter of fact, what uh, the Al-Qaeda operational uh, people predicted would happen did in fact happen, that the United States responded by essentially trying to wipe out Al-Qaeda and uh, taking over Afghanistan. Uh, this was not a possibility that was accepted by Osama bin Laden and his most ideological group, and so they uh, were proven to be wrong in that particular case. But this is, again, true of many uh, different suicide attacks. It's difficult when looking at them to understand what particularly they're trying to accomplish. Uh, is there an overall strategic or even tactical goal other than communicating simple mass fear, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to Iraq. A fourth group of objections that has been labeled against, uh, leveled against uh, suicide attacks has come from the spiritual fact of the significance of jihad. The fact is, is that jihad for, uh, for fighters and for, and for legal scholars is considered to be something of a, of a sacrament. It's not necessarily accepted by the broader side of Islam, but it is a, a, a something that is pushed fairly strongly by jihadi warriors in their uh, in their writings. And the question is: is uh, is the jihad? How is the jihad supposed to be rewarded? And what is the status of the heart of the person who is fighting it? at their very last moment. This is something that goes back to the certain tradition where the prophet is asked, who is fighting truly in a jihad? And some people throw out the idea that somebody who fights for fame, somebody who fights for fortune, somebody who fights for uh, for other different worldly gains uh, is fighting truly in a jihad. And the prophet says, uh, no, only the person who fights to raise the word of God to the highest is truly fighting in the jihad. But that raises a lot of questions with regard to suicide attackers. Because the fact is, is that uh, suicide attackers achieve a great deal of fame after they are, uh, after they're dead. Oftentimes, uh, the byproduct of a suicide attack is, uh, is what's known as the last testament, uh, a video recording, uh, oftentimes posted on the internet or sent to uh, to large-scale uh, news corporations like CNN or Al Jazeera, in which uh, the uh, the the person who carried out the suicide attack explains the reasons why they are doing this attack, and that particular person then achieves some amount of fame or notoriety, depending on how one looks at it. There's also the issue of martyrologies that are created after uh, those people are dead. And so 
the question that arises in this uh, in, in this group of, of spiritual uh, opposition to uh, martyrdom operations actually comes from inside radical Islamic circles themselves. That they question whether actually somebody can carry out a suicide attack and be divorced entirely from the desire to achieve some sort of fame after one has died. And that that would inevitably taint any particular operation. In other words, ideally jihad or martyrdom should be an anonymous activity that's really only known to God and that the person who carries it out should remain anonymous. His or her deeds should only be known uh, to God. And so there's a lot of different conflict within radical Muslim circles about whether uh, these sort of uh, martyrs or whatever you want to call them, suicide attackers, should actually be glorified uh, after their death. Um, from a methodological point of view, uh, suicide attacks uh, within the Middle East don't have necessarily very good antecedents within uh, Sunni Islam. Mostly from the 1970s and 1980s, uh, we find them closely associated with either the Kurdish PKK or uh, the uh, Shiite Hezbollah. Certain other nationalist and socialist or Marxist movements use them. But that changes gradually inside the early 1990s, especially from 1993, when Hamas begins to use uh, suicide attacks here and there against Israel. So these suicide attacks are usually seen as uh, the response of an organization that was seeking for some sort of uh, identity at, the, at this critical moment uh, at that particular time, the PLO and Israel were negotiating for the beginnings of a Palestinian state, and Hamas was lacking any particular goal or ability to define itself uh, in the face of large-scale pa Palestinian opposition or apathy to its general uh, drive towards an Islamic state. For whatever reasons... Uh, the appearance of, uh, of suicide attacks among Sunnis sparked a fairly uh, interesting intellectual debate uh, that w pretty much was culminated by 1997 uh, after Hamas had used by then about a half a dozen to a dozen suicide attacks um, with varying effects. Um, as to whether suicide attacks were actually legitimate within Islam. And it's real easy to see when you look at the groups of fatwas that were collected at that particular time that, uh, that, that the acceptance of suicide attacks as legitimate had more the character of, a, of almost a, a, a mass movement that was highly uncritical of the methodology behind suicide attacks. The intellectual and religious thinking uh, that's revealed inside these fatwas is very, very sloppy. Very little thought goes into whether uh, suicide attacks are actually suicide, uh, what they're supposed to accomplish. Almost all of the, the, the fatwas that have been assembled in uh, Nawafat Takruri's book uh, on, uh, on suicide attacks 
which he supports suicide attacks, uh, and marshals just about every single bit of evidence Islamically that he can to uh, to support it. Um, just about every uh, fatwa that uh, dates from this period is very, very weak. Uh, it's just extraordinarily uh, lacking in any particular Islamic or Quranic support. And most of them cite uh, rather political issues that, uh, that would justify suicide attacks. Hardly any uh, engage in the issues directly. Now that changed remarkably after uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, Palestinians had begun to use suicide attacks again at the beginning of the Second Intifada in 2000. And uh, moreover, suicide attacks had begun to spread to other different locations where Muslims were fighting some sort of uh, war of liberation. The most prominent of those was Chechnya. Uh, where you found the first suicide attacks appearing in uh, in June of 2000. Um, but the suicide attacks of, uh, of September 11th, 2001, sparked a genuine debate. On the one hand, there were elites who had very casually supported suicide attacks with regard to Israel, but had not really thought out the issues very carefully. And when suddenly confronted with, uh, with suicide attacks against the United States, found themselves under severe governmental pressure, especially in Saudi Arabia and Egypt, to, uh, to delegitimize suicide attacks against any other target other than Israel. Remembering that basically... The goals of religious and oftentimes political elites in the Arab and Muslim world is to focus as much violence as possible upon the country of Israel and to avoid uh, legitimizing violence towards any other country. So the goals of radical Muslims, on the other hand, are to maximize those, that violence as much as possible. And they took the weak and sloppy a legitimization process that uh, that the elites had used prior to September 11th and took all of those arguments that they had used against Israel and applied them to the United States fairly naturally, actually. Um, it's very widespread throughout the Arab world that there's some type of essential identity between the United States and Israel that... Uh, Sometimes Israel is said to control the United States. Sometimes the uh, United States controls Israel. It's very hard to, to know uh, what to uh, uh, conclude from all these different conspiracy theories that you find. But it's, uh, in retrospect, it's abundantly clear that the, that the elites, uh, the religious elites, had done an extremely bad job of differentiating between what they considered to be legitimate suicide attacks against Israel and those that they were either forced to consider to be illegitimate or else uh, actually considered to be illegitimate uh, inside the United States. Now, this process was complicated by, the, as I said, the appearance of suicide attacks on a mass scale uh, in various different other areas of the Muslim world usually at this particular time on the periphery. 
Uh, as I say, uh, various uh, Chechen groups began to use suicide attacks uh, after 2000, and those groups had a, a very close access intellectually and religiously with uh, leadership in Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabian uh, ulama began to justify the Chechen uh, suicide attacks and say that they were a legitimate jihad against an oppressive government, in this particular, in particular case, Russia, uh, and uh, that they were the first time that you found a, a legitimization for suicide attacks outside of the Israeli-Palestinian area. This was hugely to the benefit of al-Qaeda and its ideological allies. So once again, it moved away the focus from Israel and Palestine to the larger world, which was basically their goal. From that particular point, the, uh, the, the process of suicide attacks have spread hugely. Uh, I'm just going to go down different, uh, different theaters of, uh, of areas and discuss where and, and what were the, some of the prominent operations and issues that, uh, that developed. First of all, it's possible to talk about South Asia. Almost immediately, South Asia became a focus for suicidal attacks and suicide attacks uh, uh, starting from September 11th. Already, Pakistan had seen a wave of suicide attacks, but they had been internal in nature. They had been usually carried out by Sunni radical groups against Shiites, uh, oftentimes blowing up Shiite mosques or desecrating various different Shiite sanctities and so forth. Occasionally, suicide attacks had been used against the Indian army in Kashmir. Uh, but uh, starting uh, with uh, 2001, you began to see a pattern of suicide attacks that were directed primarily against India and uh, a number of different other suicidal attacks that ultimately culminated in the Mumbai uh, terrorist operation of last year. But uh, the, the primary growth of suicide attacks uh, has definitely happened in Pakistan since uh, 2007. Uh, in 2007, uh, the Pakistani army uh, attacked the Red Mosque uh, located in, uh, in Islamabad, which had been the headquarters of quite a number of the radicals uh, associated with different groups throughout Pakistan. And in revenge, you began to see a pattern of suicide attacks that, uh, that targeted civilians and uh, intelligence, and military, in all of the major cities of Pakistan. And this is a wave of attacks that has yet to come to uh, a full uh, stop. But even more than Pakistan, the, uh, the target of, of suicide attacks in that area has been Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan has seen a dramatic upswing in suicide attacks since 2004. Uh, there's been uh, there's estimates of at least a thousand suicide attacks since uh, that year, although they don't get reported in the news very often because, uh, unlike uh, some of their uh, some of their comrades, uh, the suicide attackers in uh, in uh, Afghanistan are particularly inept, uh, and usually 
have sought to target uh, soldiers rather than civilians. Now, one has to remember that really, basically, suicide attacks are pretty, uh, pretty ineffective against a prepared and warned military. Uh, there are times when a suicide attacker can actually catch soldiers at unawares uh, or sometimes penetrate into, let's say, like a mess hall and so forth, uh, such as happened a couple of years ago in Mosul uh, in Iraq uh, when a suicide attacker managed to make his way into an American army uh, mess hall and killed 19 soldiers. But for the most part... It's very difficult for a suicide attacker to actually approach military. It's very easy for these guys to attack uh, civilian targets, and that's where they usually have uh, have chosen to uh, to uh, to focus. The other area, in, uh, the other country in South Asia that has seen a wave of suicide attacks uh, was Bangladesh uh, throughout uh, 2005. When you found uh, that the uh, radical Muslim groups there tried to establish a Muslim state and set off a number of different bombings, uh, but ultimately were foiled. Really, it's been the Middle East that has seen beyond uh, uh, beyond the uh, South Asia the strongest wave of suicide attacks, and this began largely in 2003 when Al-Qaeda and its ideological cohorts made what, in retrospect, is really quite a fatal error. So they began to take uh, take suicide attacks into major Arab cities. And that started in 2003 with the bombings in Casablanca and in Riyadh, and culminated with that, uh, with the second bombing in Riyadh that, uh, that killed only Muslims. Now, Al-Qaeda had long uh, perfected the ability to rationalize the killings of Muslims and regularly published online in its journals and other different uh, Internet resources different defenses or explanations of the reasons why uh, different attacks had occurred. Those reasons usually boil down to we can't differentiate uh, this is war. There are sometimes casualties in war. Uh, civilians and uh, and Muslims are not inviolate. Sometimes those people that are killed are said to be not really Muslims uh, because they were uh, associated with uh, with an unjust government or uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. All of those arguments can be backed up. With, uh, with materials from the Prophet's life. And they usually are, and hadith, and different uh, Quranic verses and so forth. But they, uh, they demonstrate a certain callousness towards human life that is simply not comprehended by anybody who is not a radical Muslim. When one reads these things, they're very detailed, sometimes stretching for hundreds of pages, and they list off Tons of hadith, uh, uh, descriptions from the time of the prophet, and so forth, in justification for killing uh, innocent civilians. And here I'll give an example, uh, one that's uh, one that's uh, that's oftentimes cited in the the Egyptian um, uh, radical movement, uh, 
um, which has to do with an operation that happened in 1993 uh, when uh, Egyptian radicals sought to assassinate the, uh, the minister of the interior of Egypt. And so they tried to bomb him, and instead their bomber mistimed, and he killed uh, an eight-year-old little girl. Now, this was a point where they received huge negative publicity, and uh, ultimately, after a number of such bumbled operations uh, in 1995, 96, and 97, they actually even had to close down shop. But years later, this issue still reverberates with radical Muslims in Egypt. And those that, that after 1997 began to publish refutations of their own arguments for violence, which have been a flood since, uh, since that time, uh, have oftentimes brought up that issue of the murder of that little girl. And was it justified that she had to die in order to try and kill the minister of the interior? Now, for many of those repentant radicals, they simply say, no. The Prophet's Hadith says specifically that women and children are not targets within the jihad. Uh, a year ago, uh, Ayman Zawahiri, uh, the second-in-command of al-Qaeda, published a very large refutation of one of those, ref uh, of one of those rebuttals. Uh, it was his attempt to uh, regain some credibility within his home audience, which, since he's Egyptian, he uh, pays very close attention to what's happening in intellectual and religious currents in Egypt. And uh, he had to confront squarely that, uh, that question of the killing of that little girl. Uh, and he does in a full chapter, because he has to deal with that question of why do innocents have to die? In these, in these sort of operations. What responsibility is it of a radical to take uh, provisions that, uh, that, that innocents do not die? And he says, in the end, in his conclusion, he, he responds to the attacks of his own mentor, uh, who since has turned against him uh, and published a very long attack on his methodology. He says, he says, I am sorry that that little girl had to die, but the jihad is more important than the life of a little girl. And the truth is, is it really comes down to that. Uh, it comes down to that issue of whether one thinks that the, that the overall goal is more important than the life of the little girl uh, as to whether one can accept the, uh, the methodology of radical Muslims. Overwhelmingly, since, uh, since uh, 2003, the best inoculation for the popularity of, uh, of radical Muslims has been, in fact, the appearance of, of suicide attacks. There's no doubt that al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and his groups, uh, their ideological supporters and so forth, uh, were very highly popular uh, in Saudi Arabia until all of a sudden the appearance of suicide attacks uh, against civilians simply could not be explained away. And the same has happened in Jordan and in Egypt and probably most especially in Iraq. 
There's no other country in the world that has ever been subject to the wave of suicide attacks that Iraq has had. Uh, one stands amazed at the number uh, and successfulness of the types of suicide attacks that now ranges up to approximately 1,400 operations and at least 45,000 to maybe 50,000 people killed during the past five years. This is an amazing and incredible series of operations, the like of which uh, has never been known, and leaves any other suicide operation, certainly that uh, between uh, the Palestinians and Israel, uh, in the dust. Um, The best that the Palestinians were ever able to do is uh, approximately 120 uh, operations over a period of uh, four or five years. So the methodology in Iraq apparently has been to try and maximize the killing of, of civilians in order to actually drive the country into a state of chaos from which it cannot uh, recover and that the radical Muslims would be able to take power uh, thereby. In other words, the radical Muslims are precisely those who have no interest whatsoever in stability of the country. They're not strong enough to actually take power by main force, but can actually uh, kill as many people as uh, possible in order to uh, drive people into their, um, their arms. Now, in Iraq, one sees the, uh, the effects that suicide attacks can actually have over a progressive period of time. In other words, they can actually, if, if driven progressively and methodically over a long period of time, they can drive a, a population into a state of absolute terror. And it's clear in retrospect that this was what, what, what the Palestinians uh, during the years between 2001 and 2003 had actually attempted to do but could not complete because of physical separation between uh, the Palestinians and Israel due to the security wall that was built uh, at that particular time. But Iraq is very special. Uh, and the man who, be, uh, who stood behind that, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, definitely had a method to his madness. He really was an apocalyptic visionary who sought to implement uh, the sort of suicidal jihad that would be both on one hand redemptive and apocalyptic in order to create an idealized state. An amazing vision, even if it cost uh, the, uh, the lives of at least 50,000 and probably many, many more uh, in order to achieve it. Um, in other different places, uh, for example, North Africa, uh, one finds uh, the appearance of suicide attacks in, uh, in Algeria as uh, the Algerian radical groups have renamed themselves Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, in, in, the, in the West Africa, carrying out suicide attacks in Algeria, carrying them out in, in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Mauritania. Uh, to date, uh, in other places in Africa, most especially in Somalia, suicide attacks are being uh, carried out on a regular basis, and even by Americans. The first uh, American martyr 
uh, of Somali descent, uh, blew himself up uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and uh, his his body remains have been sent back to the United States. So it's very interesting to watch these uh, these things as they as they start to infect various different communities, Somalians being drafted into uh, into fighting radical uh, uh, Islamic um, uh, wars in Somalia um, and other different uh, converts sometimes appearing uh, and being willing to uh, to carry out suicide attacks as well in other places in the uh, in the Muslim world um, Especially in uh, in uh, Chechnya, suicide attacks continue. There was one uh, last week, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, in Uzbekistan, and it's thought that uh, that there have been several different suicide attacks, even uh, among the Chinese Muslims in Rumchi. And that is coupled together with uh, with the the pattern of suicide attacks that has happened in Indonesia, closely associated with the group of uh, of Jamaah Islamiyah, uh, that started off with the massive Bali attacks in October of 2002, and continued on with a number of attacks of prominent Western uh, targets, such as the Marriott Hotel, the Australian Embassy. And then another attack uh, on Bali uh, in 2005. In the Western world, uh, suicide attacks have been primarily foiled. There's been several that have been foiled in the United States, uh, about a half a dozen that have been foiled in Germany, uh, in Australia, uh, in, in the Netherlands, and in Denmark. Um, and then, of course, the successful one in, uh, in London in July of 2005. So this pattern of suicide attacks, which comes together to be approximately three to 4,000 suicide attacks carried out by radical Muslims over the past uh, some 20 years, is an incredible one. It uh, demonstrates a, a, a sea change and kind of a, of, a, of a worship, as it were, of, a, of, of this deadly methodology. And... The truth is, is that it has been a hard sell. It's been necessary to uh, to change the terminology considerably from the time of Al-Azam, who referred to them actually as suicide attacks, to martyrdom operations. In other words, to emphasize the fact that they are not suicidal in nature, to emphasize that they are creating a group of martyrs. There's a whole uh, section of martyrdom mythology that's built up around these uh, these martyrs that's easily viewable, well, at least until recent times. It's been easily viewable on, uh, on YouTube where you could oftentimes access uh, videos uh, from, uh, from Iraq. Uh, if you pushed in martyr into Somalia, you would get, uh, oftentimes uh, you'd get uh, videos of, of Somalian guys blowing themselves up. And in Algeria as well. So these uh, this martyrdom mythology is very closely connected with the classical teachings of uh, concerning the mar- uh, the martyr's body, uh, which is usually considered to be pure and holy. Uh, musk, uh, the smell of musk emanates from it. There's oftentimes visions uh, that are associated with the martyr. Uh, whole martyrologies will describe 
the meeting of uh, various different martyrs uh, together with the Huris that they're going to be with uh, for the rest of their life, who sound rather suspiciously like porn stars. But one shouldn't be too judgmental. Uh, I'm always quite shocked when <laughs> when I read this sort of stuff in uh, in uh, in such a religious uh, context. Uh, you find quite uh, quite interesting material there. At any rate, uh, so these sort of things will be uh, constant with regard to martyrologies appearing uh, from Bosnia, from Afghanistan, from Chechnya. And so there's a whole range of types of themes that have to appear. The martyr is said to be alone. He's said to have been chosen by God. He sees these visions. He sees the dreams. He has a goal. And he has a method by which to achieve the goal. Now, the question is, is why does he do it? And there... Most commonly, one can isolate issues of compromise. In other words, that, uh, that oftentimes that particular person will be a compromised believer, somebody who has collaborated, let's say, somebody who has sinned. Uh, and so many of these figures will do things that are Islamically problematic, and knowing that they can do them because their last action will actually wipe them all out. And this is the, this is the way that, uh, that a murderer who commits a martyrdom operation can actually sort of stack the decks, as it were, uh, concerning his, uh, his eternal future. Because the last actions that he takes are the ones that are going to judge his eternal, uh, his eternal fate, he can afford to actually do a number of different non-Islamic actions that would lead up to that particular point. Uh, and so I, martyrdom operations actually are ideal for a compromised or sinning Muslim. There's also the very pious guy uh, who's oftentimes... Uh, Wants to, wants to be a demonstration for Islam, who's looking for some sort of method by which he can, uh, he can demonstrate the truth of Islam. But overwhelmingly, one finds that the, that the attraction value of, uh, of radical Islam in its martyrology comes to those people who, ha- who are uh, in some way or another needing repentance. So, uh, so the mythology there will be, uh, and you see this very commonly on the, on the videos, is that Islam is in danger. Oftentimes the videos will start off with a picture of the Quran burning, as it were. And, you know, the, the, the sense is this overwhelming horror that the Quran itself is, is, is being the target, uh, let's say, in Iraq. And then one will see, uh, let's say, an American soldier casually throwing some uh, something on, uh, you know, like some sort of starting a fire or something. Then a Quran starts to burn, and then you see the warriors of Islam coming to uh, to defend and so forth. And sometimes they will they will bless a given man who you know who has said he is going to go and marry the Huris. Probably one of the most famous of their videos is what's known as Fatima's fiance, 
who, which tells the story of this Saudi Arabian guy who sees this, uh, this video which describes this anonymous, I mean, this, it's difficult to identify a woman. Who, she's not anonymous, but she does have a name, Fatima, but no one has ever been able to identify her, who supposedly is a prisoner in Abu Ghraib uh, and who is raped and beaten repeatedly by American soldiers and violated, and she only asked to commit suicide and that somebody uh, would come and take vengeance for her. And so this young man, Abu Muawiyah Shamali, uh, sees this video, and he cannot rest or relax until he does something about it. And so he records a video, and he says, he says I asked God that he marry me to this woman in paradise. And so he, uh, you, you watch him as he take, uh, as he takes you out to this car, which has been hooked up with a bomb, and he pats the bomb, uh, and he says, "This is the, this is my dowry for my wife." And then he drives off, and he's waving, you know, goodbye, and everybody's saying, "Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar," and then, uh, then the 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 the, the camera sw- switches to, to this man who's following him. And you see him in the distance, and the guy begins to say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And then, and then all of a sudden, there's this gigantic fireball uh, as the man blows himself up. And, yeah, that's a very common theme that you, that you see throughout these, uh, throughout these martyrdom videos. It's a, it's a very strong sense of Islam is in danger. There is a hero, a single hero, who is coming forth to take vengeance and that person triumphs uh, through committing suicide, through committing a martyrdom operation uh, against uh, the Americans. Now, whether those have actually been efficacious or not, that's a completely different question. So the, uh, the martyrologies that have been developed through recent uh, martyrdom operations are of a dramatic uh, in absolute nature, and they have become uh, integral to the process of creating new martyrs on a continual basis. But they've also uh, had the opposite effect as well. Uh, the horrors that have been created in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and in other different Muslim countries have also turned substantial numbers of Muslims away from radical Islam, such as in Pakistan uh, of late, where excessive numbers of suicide attacks indiscriminately killing large numbers of civilians have uh, effectively destroyed the credibility of radical Muslims. Thank you.